Listening Dog Media. Rocket with Kieran Bracken and Nick Easter. The Rugby Podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously. Hello, welcome to Rocket. This week we're going to be talking to some of the UK's biggest sports stars regarding their own mental health battles. It is Mental Health Awareness Week. I think it's very important that everyone talks. Today we're going to be joined by Clark Carlisle, who will be openly talking about his own mental health struggles during Mental Health Awareness Week. Mate, how, how's the last year been for you, Clark? This uh, the year of pandemic, or year and a bit? Uh, oh, wow, quite incredible. Um, you know, it's it's interesting because it, it's an unprecedented experience for many people, yet. Carrie and I would say that it's it was the second type of lockdown for us, Nick. Uh, and jumping in right at the deep end, you know, I, I've been in psychiatric hospital a couple of times. And yeah. when I came out in 2017, which really is the seminal moment in my growth, in my well-being, uh, when, when I came out in 2017, um, we really wrapped me in cotton wool. And I, and I didn't leave the house for, for weeks, possibly months. Uh, and everything was just slowly, slowly, step by step, day by day. And, and that was almost like our training for this one. The difference being we went into this lockdown, uh, into this, you know, this whole year of a sequence of lockdowns um, with a, a knowledge and an understanding about what, what we might need to do, you know, in order to get through it. That's not to say that we're experts and we hit it straight away, but you know, after after a couple of weeks, uh, we really got into our stride. And this year has been the greatest year of growth for me personally as a human, and for the work that we do. We've evolved it, you know, in many different ways. So it's actually on a personal level. Um, being very good for me on a work level has totally added, you know, a dozen new strings to to our bow. Um, with the the drawback being the same as I would imagine everyone else is just the inhibition, you know, not being able to see my yeah. family. We're we're a blended family, so I have two kids who live hundred miles away in in York. I have another child who lives. Uh, I say child; she's twenty two now. Who lives over in Macclesfield, two hundred and fifty miles away. So not being able to see them has been really tough. Really tough. Yeah, so just take just take us back then. So what's what worked? So um, obviously, you know, Clark, your former professional footballer, TV pundit, commentator, um, chair of the PFA, um, multiple campaigns in terms of raising awareness for mental health, and uh, you, you know, it's it's always especially in men, um, yeah, been a tricky thing to sort of encourage people to talk about. And you've been at the forefront. You've been absolutely. Um, Superb and fantastic and open about discussing your own personal journey in, in which we're obviously going to delve deeper into. But if we just take back to you just said in the last year, you've actually, with the growth and what you've got involved in, can you just um, yeah, di- divulge a little bit into what you've got involved in just in the last year? Uh, what I've got involved in work-wise or personally? Well, but both, you know, and if it, if it matches up and combines... Well, in fact, I'll start great. personally because that, that kind of uh, precipitated everything else. You know, we, we came into lockdown and um, one of my 
uh, old autopilot coping structures for dealing with times and situations where there are too much for me to think about is um, distraction. Now, years back, it was distraction through drinking, you know, or distraction through gambling. Um, but because I've, I've put the cap on those behaviours, but still that, you know, the, the need to do it is still there from time to time. And when we went into lockdown and it was like, can't see my kids and, and all the rest of it, I started to go on this. Started yeah. to go on my phone and um, it was getting to like 12, 14 hours a day. And my wife and we have a relationship where nothing's off limits. We we speak honestly and authentically to each other, but with care. You know, it's not like an accusation. We care. And she said, "You're spending so much time on your phone. Um, I, I really think you need to see someone. You know, to go back into therapy around around that." And what 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 necessarily? I mean, most people probably know because we, we all spend too much time on our phones, but. What particularly were you getting into on your phone? Was it social media? Was it, you know, your mates no, was just I, surfing? I was it looking for the sort of late, latest hit sort of thing? Or were you were you just letting the day drift by and, and just having your phone? I stay on? a million miles from social media. It's not good for me. You know, having been no. a people pleaser for uh, all of my life up until the last four, four or five years, you know, I put far too much weight on these random people's opinions who were throwing, you know, throwing opinions at me. They'll ne- they've never met me, will never meet me, have never seen my work. Yet they might say, oh, Clark, you, you know, you're rubbish. And I'd be like, oh, my gosh, I need to win this person round. No, that's rubbish, not for me. Uh, what I was getting into, there's um, WGT Golf which is uh, like a virtual golf game and something called Cash Frenzy, which is like a virtual slot machine adventure where you've got a... With with real money? No, no, no no, real money, no. Um, But to be fair, it's almost like... um, it's like methadone, isn't it, for heroin? (laughs) It gives gives the same hit, but um, it, it can... It kind of masks the fact that the need or the want to do that was still there or that that behaviour works for me in a certain capacity, which is why Carrie was like, you know, let, let's start therapy again. Now, this is interesting because um, I go to the PFA because they're my union, you know, they, they support us all the way through our lives. I got to PFA and I asked to, to speak to a therapist. And because we're in lockdown, like normally they would just pick someone geographically who was nearby so I could go and see them. But because we're in lockdown, they were able to just pick someone who they felt was the best for, for what I was going through. And I met this guy, Nick Mercer. My goodness, the guy's incredible. The the you know, I've, I've had a number of therapists in the past and um, and I've, I've made good progress with each, you know, at, at different levels. But this guy, it showed me the difference between having therapy sessions and connecting with your therapist. Me and this guy are on the same wavelength. And he's like a, you know, a, a 60-year-old Scouse white guy. And, and I'm, I'm 40 something. I'm only just, <laughs> I'm only just 41. Hey, you're younger than me. You're younger than me. Just, only just though. A 41 year old black kid from Preston, you know, and we should, we should be miles apart on so many things, but we just connected so well. It was incredible. And the way that he relayed things to me um, was, you know, it, it 
it was just on a, on a deeper, more meaningful level than going through a textbook that some of my therapists have done before. And um, he's taken my learning and my knowledge of myself onto so many next levels. And because of that, I, I was able to um, be in a place throughout these lockdowns where I could accept that all of that was circumstantial and I had no control over it. But there are many things within these four walls that I do have control over, you know, and, and I have the ability and the capacity to do A, B and C. And um, and because of that, you know, our work, which is corporate speaking now, you know, we run a mental health consultancy. Um, for the past three years, had all been face to face going down the city and, and, and what have you, seeing these big companies and we were very skeptical about this about the virtual connection you know we didn't think you could get that uh that real empathetic authentic connection with people well i, I was wrong <laughs> i was very wrong you know we we adapted the work that we do to deliver online to deliver online workshops we create i designed and created a couple of websites and uh, and now we've gone on to a mental health support mechanism for the workplace in general and that's just going through development getting the academic rigor in and stuff like that so it, it's been amazing for us it really has but it didn't start that way I started, uh, you know, delving back into my own behaviours and it's only because my wife had the freedom to say, you know, now's the time to do something before this gets, uh, you know, becomes some kind of Ill illness or going down the slope. And I did. And uh, and I'm so grateful for that. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like your wife's an absolute heroine, mate. A She's incredible. And, Absolutely. You, you know, we, we, we know in this sort of thing, you know, you can talk and open up, but having that support where people can understand you, have that emotion, intelligence, that empathy, you know, you've spoken about Nick Mercer, your wife as well. I mean, that's critical. Did did, did the PFA match you up with Nick? Did they? Uh, the, were, were they yes. The, well, the PFA, um, they pay for the first six sessions with any therapist. Uh, and more if needs be, you know, you can go back and, and, and apply for funding. Uh, but it's actually sporting chance. It's the it's the clinic arm of the PFA, um, Colin Bland. Uh, Colin is a friend of mine. You know, we've worked together over a number of years. And, um, and when I told him, you know, I really want to... I said, I, I, there's not, there's not a, a problem at the moment with regards, you know, addiction or addictive behaviour, but there are, there are th a thought cycles that I'm having that I don't like. I want to address them now before they become a problem. And uh, and Colin said, right, I know just the man. So, you know, giving credit where credit's due is a CEO for a reason. And he put me in touch with Nick and, it, and that was it. It was perfect. So you talk about, and that's, that's, that's superb them to be able to do that, but there was obviously a background to it before. And as far as you're concerned, as you just say, you identified the thought mechanisms, you went, hold on, hold on, this is dangerous territory here. But when you obviously, you know, I'm going to ask the question, when did your battle with mental health, mental health first begin? You wouldn't have been as aware of it. And, you know, some guys and girls listening to this and, and viewers watching, you know, they might be unaware that, you know, things might be happening to them or close friends or family or whatever it might be. Um, so I'm hoping, you know, when did your battle first begin and when did you sort of realise actually that this doesn't feel right? You make a really good point there, Nick. It's only because of the experience and knowledge that we have that, that we're able to say that, it, not that this is a problem, but 
this is something that needs attention now before it becomes a problem. You know, my, my journey is one of 10 years of complete ignorance about what was going on in my life. And, and that's not ignorance uh, by choice. It was ignorance because um, mental health and, and depression and, uh, and depressive episodes, it wasn't part of my vocabulary. I hadn't been taught it. I, you know, I had no understanding of it. Um, so you, you're, you're right. I didn't know that there was something that warranted attention. And um, my journey came about... Uh, back in 2001, um, I time for QPR in the championship, moved there from Blackpool, uh, made my debut for England under-21s, uh, career was, you know, really taking off. And then I got a knee injury in the game against uh, Fulham. Innocuous tackle with Rufus Brevet. You know, you'd have 15, 20 of them a game, but this one, I snapped my ACL, LCL, popliteus, ITB, rotated the fibula head, dislodged a nerve, ripped, ripped the hamstring off. So my knee was comprehensively buggered. Uh, I went to see specialist, Mr. Andrew Williams. Uh, ah, yeah. Fantastic man, fantastic. Still working in, in professional sport Is now. He, oh, he, still the uh, man to go to, yeah. Well, certainly from a rugby point of view, and I imagine football. Still calling well. everyone boss. How are you doing, boss? <laughs> <laughs> he was a magnificent man, honestly. And um, he said, I'll do my best. He said, but expect yourself to have to walk with a stick. You know, never mind going back to football. So this absolutely battered me. No, oh, mate, it's at 21 when your career's it's taking just off. Just taking like off. Was. And, you know, just starting to play for England under 21s, like I said. You know, I was on, I'd gone from £500 a week at Blackpool to two and a half grand a week at, at QPR. I was thinking, yeah, this is awesome. And then bang, it was just all taken away. And th there was no uh, support structure around long term injury back then. You know, yeah. I, I had my op and I was housebound for about five weeks and physio said, just have a drink, mate. You know, just relax, have a drink. So I did, you know. I, I, and up to and up to that point, you know, how, how often did you have a drink? Did you have a drink? Like or, everyone else did. Were you quite prof quite professional and, and yeah, teetotal? Yeah, you know, um, I was always taught at Blackpool, uh, there's a time and a place and Tuesdays and Saturdays were that time and place. You know, and, and it was not a problem. Socialised with the lads in that manner. Um, it, yeah, the drinking in and of itself hadn't been an issue prior to that. No. Um, and I used a company called Dyla Crate. It's <laughs> still going in London. Uh, Crate Carling, two bottles of Chablis, 40 Marble Lights. Thank you very much. Had that delivered to me flat in Acton two or three times a week for that, that five-week period. And you, you can imagine, you know, my, my head was in utter disarray. Um, I, I was also a young father. So I, I had a daughter aged 19 in Blackpool and I had left her and her mum in Blackpool to come down to London, split up from her mum. And, you know, I had this thought that me sending her money back every month was me fulfilling my duties as a father, yeah. especially because we came from nothing. I thought, oh, you know, she'll have all the money in the world. She'll want for nothing more than I ever had. You know, one of these delusions that you hold, um, that you hold in your own mind to justify your actions. And... Um, when I got to this point, when I thought my football had gone, when I thought that not only had I physically abandoned my daughter, but now I was going to financially abandon her as well, you know. And you, and you were thinking, you, these thoughts were coming into your head 
what, pretty immediately after the Andy Williams conversation or maybe a, were they festering a few weeks later after, you know, oh, I, I unsuccessful say, rehab or just the fact that you, you know, you couldn't see the sort of um, the light at the end of the tunnel in recovery? There or, was no light at the end yeah. of the tunnel for me because there, there wasn't any kind of, uh, you know, I, I had the chat with Andy Williams, but there was no support, ongoing conversation. There was no plan of action. There was no alternative yeah. options, you know. I was just but put back in my flat on, on my Jack Jones and, and left to pick up myself in, in crates of Carling. So, you know, it was all going through my head in, I couldn't even say. But you were getting, you were getting treatment and physiotherapy at the club then? Uh, not initially, no, because I was, I was housebound. I just stayed in the house. Because you just had the, yeah, had the I think I went in like once a week for the first four weeks or something like that. Yeah. Um, but it was in that period, Nate, that when my head yeah. was, was a mess that I, I took an overdose of my post-op painkillers, 56 co-proximal, washing down with a can of carling and just waited for the inevitable. But um, I had a new girlfriend. At- that, that, that was deliberate. Oh, yeah. Deliberate. No accident. You know, I knew exactly what I was doing. Uh, t- took a lot of them and, and waited to die in my flat. And like I said, I had a new girlfriend who came to the flat, apropos of nothing. Uh, uh, she just wanted to bring me some flowers, cheer me up. And she found me in a, in a two and eight on the floor and, and called an ambulance, got to hospital, put my stomach. I'm alive. Yeah, um, pretty, pretty, pretty horrific. Um, so after that, after you recovered from that, you came to... Mm. What were your thoughts? Did anything change, Could, or was it? I can't wait to get back to my flat and order the next, you know, it's a really Shabley, Carling, Morbellites, or, or was there a bit of an epiphany there? There was or? no immediate epiphany. I, I actually refused to have my stomach pumped for for a long time. Um, my girlfriend's old man came to the hospital, took some kind of power of attorney over me, and, and, and made the choice. Um, and like you said, I went back to my, my flat to to stew a bit more. And it's that whole process, you know, I was discharged from the hospital by the physio because they didn't, the club didn't want anyone to know what had happened. And I didn't yeah. see any a psychologist or a psychiatrist or anyone, you know, it's just like, right, oh, sure, pretend that never happened. Don't be stupid. And and I was back in me, back in me flat, just, just in the same position, you know, but I will say that after that, I was in the club more frequently and after that, I was engaging more in conversation with the physio about prospects and what the programme was going to be. But there was absolutely no mention or reflection on the incident. It yeah. was just totally disregarded and put, you know, put under the bed. And that's the inception of my depression there. But we didn't know that. We didn't know that, you know, what, what the physio tried to do was shift my attention forward thinking on this re- rehabilitation programme. And uh, and it worked, you know, I was out for two years, but I did get back to fitness and I went on to play, you know, 500 games, which is wonderful testament to Andy Williams and Prav and the physio team. But there was absolutely no attention paid to this suicide attempt. And... It, it was because of that, because we paid no attention to it, because I didn't um, do any speaking therapy, you know, to understand what was going on and why I'd come to that that decision and how I'd come to that place, that um, my depression went on unchecked for 10 years. And it, it's amazing because it wasn't as though um, 
even when you you were back playing, you know, making progress. I was in a two and a half years. It came back. Mm. You were still feeling the same. Definitely at, at the core of me, yeah, and and also that there was this festering box of emotion that was ready to explode at, at any given moment. And the way it manifested itself, it, it, there's it manifested itself in my behaviours. Uh, uh, but I only know the reasons for it because of my last five years of therapy. So, like over the next what eight eight years, I would cyclically explode in some kind of irrational, dangerous behaviour. You know, it, it was almost like self sabotage. Um, and it'd be drinking benders for three or four days, gambling benders, going to the casino for two days. Um, or I would play computer games, you know, just sit and play championship manager for three days straight, not answer my phone, not go to work. And uh, and I remember periods where I was just led in bed. Uh, I would lie in bed, sleep 18 hours a day. And I don't mean like, you know, when people say, oh, I was in bed all day, but they were just pottering around the house. I mean, I was in you my pit. In I was in my pit, sweating, pissing in bottles by the bed, you know, and just thinking that I'm an abject failure. And honestly, it got to the- that. Is that why? Is that you know, just getting through, you know, from obviously your experiences and trying to yeah translate it. Is that is that why you didn't want to get out of bed? Is you just didn't want to face anything, anyone? Because um, you thought you were a failure at that moment in time. I didn't know. At that moment in time, all I felt was that I could not face the world. It was like I, yeah. I, I cannot see a person. I cannot talk to a person. I was utterly overwhelmed in something dark, in something oppressive, in something that would force my eyes closed, even though I wasn't tired. And I didn't. I could never understand it. It's only now that I, what I, I look back and see is that. You know, my, my suicide attempt in 2001 was because my whole identity was undermined. I thought that I was Clark the footballer, you know, inextricably mm. linked. Yeah. And football was the reason why my parents were proud, why, why I was earning money, why I was getting attention, why I could pay for my daughter and, and subsequently be a father. You know, everything was entwined with football. And I tried to kill myself because that was taken away. And I thought that I, I wouldn't have the capacity to fulfill all these roles. So you go, I have a look back at my behavior through the years. And any time that I felt that my job was in jeopardy or my ability to fulfill my roles was being undermined or questioned, the fear rose in me because last time it led to me killing myself. And when the fear rose, because I'm in an industry where you don't feel fear, because, you know, I'm a A1 alpha male where you don't show any sign of weakness, uh, um, because I was brought up with that Afro-Caribbean, you know, you don't talk about our business, you don't speak unless you're spoken to, you be a man, you stand up, you deal with everything. I tried to lock it down and lock it in, and I couldn't. So I had to run away. And that's what all of these things were in it, whether it was drinking, whether it was gambling, whether whether it was sleeping, whether it was the computer games. It was me desperately trying to avoid engaging with those emotions and those questions in the only yeah. way that I knew how. But I didn't know that that was what was happening. And so on that, 
when were you first clinically properly diagnosed and mm. you know, I'm not sure if it happened just before or maybe at a certain time before but uh, when did you actually realize right I've got to first ask for help whether that came after diagnosis because um, you were searching for these questions or the answers to these questions or whether actually um, either you know, family support friends or yourself you realize you needed to ask for this help I mean how soon after because you, you spoke you know for 10 years you know, even when you recovered and get and carried on and played, you know, 400, 500 games, this was still a part of it. It was still a massive when, part. When did you first realise, right, okay, that, you know, something's got to be done here or someone diagnosed you in terms of this is this is how we've got to uh, start? There, there were two forward. different times. I was diagnosed in 2010 when my ex-wife had uh, our second child, my third, and um, and she was, she was experiencing postnatal depression. And I couldn't understand it, you know. We were at Burnley, we'd just been promoted to the Premier League and my interpretation of depression was that it was a choice to be sad, you know. And I'm like, what on earth are you doing, woman? What more can we have? Blah, blah, blah. And she asked me to read up about it, so I did. And when I read it, it just, it smacked at me. I was like, my gosh, that's me, that's me, that's me. And so I asked... So, so what sort of things, what sort of things, I mean, there's probably a lot of aspects to it, but a key sort of two or three um, yeah, items you might have read from it and you suddenly went, wow, well, that, that smacks of where I am at the moment. Um, one was about sleep. Uh, it was yeah. have, uh, completely disrupted sleep patterns, either too much or too little. Uh, one was about... Um, uh, fortune telling, you know, and catastrophizing in situations. It was like, do you see hope in the future? Do you always believe that a, a situation will um, will come out the worst that it possibly can? Catastrophizing when, when you're trying to predict what's going to happen in the future. Negative thinking. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and another one was, um, do you do you find joy um, in, in any tasks? And like I just said, we'd just been promoted to the Premier League, you know, and uh, everything was was circumstantially brilliant around us. Yet these inner dialogue thought, you know, their statements were really resonating with me. And um, I went to the doctor, at, uh, the club doc at Burnley, and I said, Doc, I'm reading about postnatal depression, and I think I've got it, but I've not had a baby, so I don't understand. <laughs> and uh, he was the first one to say, Clark, you know, you, you've obviously got depression. And so that's when I was first diagnosed, and, and the doc gave me a 20 milligram of fluoxetine to take each day. And I didn't take it. I didn't take it because I was afraid of drugs tests. I didn't, you know, I wondered whether it might be contaminated and I'd already lost two years to injury. I didn't want to lose another two to a failed drugs test. And also, you know, I didn't want to take happy pills. I was chairman of the PFA, Premier League footballer. Man, you know, I don't need happy pills. They're not happy pills. But no one ever explained that to me. You know, the, the antidepressants are are there to redress the chemical balance in your brain. If you've been through a trauma, it's uh, significant enough to the individual, the chemical balance in the brain, you know, it is, is adjusted. And all these pills do is reset that balance. Doesn't make you happy, doesn't make you sad, doesn't fix your problems, 
but it just enables you to see them without without that veil, you know, that grey veil or dark oppressive veil over your eyes. But that was never explained to me. So I didn't take the meds. I had my diagnosis and I just strolled off into life thinking that now I know I've got depression, I'm all right. And, and that's almost more dangerous than not knowing, you know, because there, there was a, there's a notion within me that I'm fixed or cured or, you know, I've done enough. And, um, and so I went on into the next four or five years of my life, just pottering down that road, talking about depression to people. And when retirement came, which is one of the toughest transitions for any athlete, it's one of the toughest transitions in life for humans. You know, you go from being relevant and needed to obsolete overnight and totally without structure and everything. Uh, the, the chasm that, that that put in my life, even though I trained for another career and started another career, there was still a, 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 a huge void of self and identity and relevance. Uh, uh, and and I, I didn't have any tools to manage that. You know, I had no tools whatsoever. So this was the point where I needed help, where it became apparent, was because I came back from Brazil after commentating at the World Cup final at the Maracanã Stadium, which was incredible, uh, feeling an abject failure that my children were... Because you're 20, 2014. Yeah, 2014, yeah. thinking right. my children were uh, embarrassed of me, that my, my parents were ashamed, um, thinking that me dying was the solution not an escape, it was the best thing for everyone concerned. Yeah. And so I, I put myself in front of a, a, a lorry uh, on the A59, 60 mile an hour. And how did you survive that? Exactly. Um, you know, I, I came round, I came to, uh, 10 seconds later on, on the road, all the blood trickling down my fingers. And, you know, my first thought was, are you kidding me? I couldn't believe that I'd failed again. But not only was I alive, Nick, I didn't break a single bone. It's just incredible. Um, I'd, I'd have two days of operations to stitch me together, you know, like flesh wounds yeah. galore and all road burn and everything like that. But, mate, I was alive and I didn't have a single broken bone. And it was from there that I went into psychiatric hospital for the first time. And that's when my journey specifically changed, you know, really, really changed at that point. So this is, this is, this is really 13 years. Yeah. Ongoing 13 years. Yeah. 13 years. Uh, and yeah, would you, you know, we'll get into the, the, the journey when you, when you got admitted to psychiatric help. Um, but in terms of the mechanisms and the support, um, in place now for someone of a in a similar, not necessarily career, but in the workplace. Um, you know, where do you do you think that's changed much? Do you think? I mean, there's plenty of work to do. We know that there's plenty of work to do, and I know you're at the forefront of a lot of it as well. When when um, you go into companies and everything about you know getting a structure in place, but um, do you think? there's enough there at the moment to identify it. I'm not saying to be able to cure it or help, but just to identify it earlier. Very simply, no. Um, you know, you're right. We've come a long way, even from 2014 to now, you know, because 
Um, in 2014 and in 2010, the conversations were, it's good to talk. We know it's good to talk. Now we need to enable people and make them confident and competent in who to talk to and when. Uh, and yeah, that's what you're, you're talking about. You know, are those structures in place? Well, they're not, they're not commensurate with the need. And that's what needs to change. Um, what needs to change about the whole system in our country is that it's it's all crisis management and disaster recovery. You know, it's when you're feeling suicidal, come and talk to this person. Well, no, no, because it, it, you know, I can tell you from first-hand experience, it doesn't happen overnight. There is a descent into the this this place, uh, and going down that descent, your thoughts and your actions change at particular points. So what we need to do is is empower people to become self-aware so that they know when they've got a change in behaviour and they know what that means to them on their scale from one to 10, let's say. You know, everybody knows the traffic light system to for physical health. Then nobody would go to, to ring an ambulance and go to a and &E with... with um, you know, with a paper cut on their finger. Yeah, everyone would if they broke their leg because they know when something needs professional care and they know what level of professional care it needs. This is the level of understanding we have to have around mental health because there are things that that may just warrant peer support or, you know, partner support, a cup of tea and a hug and a chat. There are other things where you need to go to your GP and there are other things where you must go to, to hospital, to, to um, the crisis team at the hospital. And in between those spaces, you know, that's where there's places for talking therapy and for peer listening services like Samaritans and stuff. But people need to know this traffic light system, what sits where and when they need to go where. Yeah. Thinking about what you're saying is absolutely fascinating and you know, incredibly evocative. Um, you know, we read a lot about from psycho psychology in people, mm -hmm. and you know, there's a general um, thought that you know most of a person's psychological makeup or eighty percent of their psychological makeup is done by the age of five, that young. You know, in terms of the parenting to get the support the social um socio-economic um upbringing and, and clearly obviously from a school's perspective and you compare it to the physical health you say right you cut your finger you break your leg yeah. now you can cut your finger at nursery as a as, as a kid you can break your leg at nursery you can cut your finger at you know 10 when you go to school and you know 15 when you go to school and you're also taught about you know the human body and all that sort of stuff and, and what you can cope with you were talking about places you can go, you know, you've got the Samaritan's helpline and everything, but for people to be able to open up. So if someone wanted to open up to their wife, say, or their boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever it is, I think the uncomfortability of it is because they're not sure how they're going to respond and they're not comfortable because they've never actually done this. Yeah. So what I'm basically trying to say is, do you think, you know, without trying to overload you know, young children and kids and, and young adults and everything, but some sort of education um, when they're growing up, I mean, whatever facility it might be, 
to enable people to talk and listen and understand, develop a little bit of um, emotional intelligence and empathy towards that individual because it's like anything, mate. You know, you you really are you know a product of your environment, aren't you? And as much as you try and change when you're in your twenties and thirties and forties and fifties and everything, it's very, 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 very difficult. And most people don't manage to do that. Um, but if they've been exposed to the ability to adapt when they're younger, um, they're more comfortable doing it. They're more comfortable doing it in front of other people. Do you, I mean, do you think you know it's getting to the stage where? This now needs to be introduced very, very minutely, maybe, you know, not overloading as we talk about, because there's a lot of other things from an educational point of view. But if it's as serious as we're saying it is, and, you know, we're only becoming, you know, starting to realize, you know, brain health, mental health, how important it is to the rest of your life and, you know, the satisfaction and happiness you have in your life and and with others, that, uh, you know, this is introduced earlier. In, in people's lives 100% and I'm just studying what you're talking about investigating psychology <laughs> right there you go yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah you're right this wasn't set up anyone listening this was not set up <laughs> yeah conditioning is a thing it's a fact and uh, our children uh, will take on what we um, consciously and subconsciously pass on to them. And if we have no knowledge or understanding or emotional literacy, like you said, around around this, uh, then they're not going to learn it either. If it's not in schools, they're not going to learn it either. 100% this must be in schools because it can be taught without drama or sensation. Yeah, and when things are taught matter-of-fact to, to children, they learn them matter-of-factly. The, the, the emotion and drama put into learning comes from the, the teacher. It comes from the adult themselves, you know, and, and we found this from personal experience with our children and, and our wider family on our journey. Emotional literacy is of paramount importance. The ability to articulate how you're feeling it is of paramount importance to every human being. But that has to be coupled with the ability to listen. You know, people need to be acknowledged and, uh, and heard. And we, we have to teach people the difference between reacting and responding you know, you don't have to like what someone says or, or, uh, to, to be able to respond accordingly. You, you don't have to um, quell your first emotion to be able to re- respond accordingly. Just, you know, you, it's the ability to take time and, and be objective about things. But with, with regard to what you're saying, uh, until this is taught in schools uh, and the next generation have that foundation of knowledge that they are more than just their vocation, that they are more than just their their social media profile, that there are so many different facets to the human being that constitute the whole and they have value in every one of those and they're taught the ability to communicate their emotions, to hear others' emotions, then we're going to keep plodding down this path for many, many years. Yeah, 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 I mean, it's... Can't happen soon enough. You don't want to be, you know, you miss one generation. You know, that's a, that's a big, big void. Um, going back to, okay, you've now got psychiatric help after the 2014 uh, yeah. World Cup final. And well, again, you know, that's not the end of the story because it's not as though I got psychiatric help and they're not happy days. It, you know, 
know, yeah. everything's hunky-dory, which is what I thought was going to happen. Um, one of the, the things that, that people are often scared, reluctant to say in this is that there is a huge responsibility on the shoulders of the person who has the diagnosis. No one can fix me, Nick, if I don't want to be fixed. Yeah. You know, there, there is a huge, um, there's a huge part of getting well and recovery that has to come from me. I have to engage with the services. I have to actively implement what it is that the specialists and, and the, the therapists are trying to teach me. So if I don't engage with those services, I will not get well. End of. People are quite reluctant to say that because, you know, because what it throws into the mix is that, that notion of accountability for illness. Well, no, that's not true. This is distinctly separate. You're not accountable for becoming ill, but you are accountable for engaging with the wellness process. Does that make sense? Distinct yeah, difference. And I came out of psychiatric hospital with a booklet that wasn't even as thick as this book. In fact, it was maybe 10 or 12 pages long. And I thought that because I had that booklet and because I've been to psych hospital, that everything was going to be okay. But um, but it wasn't because, like I keep reiterating, you know, I didn't engage with the talking therapy to understand myself to um to learn the the language to articulate myself to uh, find out what my thought processes were that brought me to that decision yeah. you know um and so I wandered through the next three years being very cautious in life but still not actively getting well it was almost like I I, I was I was stagnating at best. But if things happened to me, I hadn't actually taught myself any new coping strategies to be able to manage them. So um, I, I was slowly, a little more slowly than previously, going back down that, that, that descent. And uh, in 2017, I left the house with the intention of killing myself for what I intended to be the final time. And... And what I'd learned from the, my past experiences was that uh, taking your own life affects those around you. Taking your own life affects the first responders. You know, from my last suicide attempt... Uh, you, were, you were aware of this, whereas the last, yeah, the last time... time you were, I was totally oblivious. You know, but now I'm aware that, you know, when I put myself in front of a lorry, there was a lorry driver. You know, whereas I, I just perceived it as an uh, uh, inanimate, like killing machine. You know, and there's there are other people who are affected by these actions. So I was wandering around Liverpool, looking for a responsible way to kill myself. You know, right? Where aren't there going to be any witnesses? Where, where, where would my my wife? But still, no thought for your loved ones and family. Well, th from that this is just it. The, the, so how you were going to leave the them. place that I was in, and this is my experience with depression: is that you get to the point where me dying is better for my family. Off, yeah. You know, you were still, you were still thinking along those yes. lines from 
family perspective, but you had more consideration for any witnesses or people who might have been involved in your suicide, indirectly involved in your suicide attempt. Yeah, but still, that was, still that convinced that it was best for all concerned and that they would be happier and better off in the long run. So, um, you know, the, this is the point where my journey totally changed because instead I've been in private psychiatric care beforehand because of the PFA and the resources that they put at your disposal. Uh, this time I was found um, and I was taken uh, to hospital and we, we utilised the NHS services. They've got a 24-hour crisis team at every A&E. So, you know, um, there are three things that get you to the front of the queue when you're in A&E. Loss of consciousness, um, uh, heart attack, stroke type issues, you know, heart problems. Cardiac issues. And suicidal uh, ideation or action. These are the three red lights at A&E. And there is a 24-hour crisis team that's ready to assess you if you go in there uh, with, with suicidal thoughts. Uh, they, they assessed me, got me a bed in Blackburn about six, seven hours later, and and it was there in Blackburn. I got a, a, a correct diagnosis. I had my medication changed um, in quantity because I was taking too much as it happened. Um, so they said we need to take your medication down, uh, but we need to take your therapy levels up by 99% because I wasn't doing anything. And uh, I engaged in CAT, Cognitive Analytical Therapy. For me, absolutely brilliant. I think it would be brilliant for um, for elite athletes, for high achievers, um, for logic, logically-minded people because... It, so what does this involve then? It, it, maps out all my cycles of thought and behaviour, maps them all out from um, uh, when I'm in my my good place, when I'm in my bad place, and when I'm in inertia. And what I found out from doing all this was that in my life, there was no middle ground. To be okay was not acceptable, uh, and not acceptable in so many different guises like I couldn't I couldn't be um in that okay place because I had to be achieving I had to be proving my worth and the whole way that my psyche ran was on uh, redemption so it was on failure totally redeem yourself failure totally redeem yourself so I couldn't that, be that is, that, that's very that's very much a product of uh, as you correctly say elite sports and professional sports you live for the highs. You live for the big moments, you know, the wins, the trophies, you know, uh, world records, whatever it might be. But there's plenty of lows. You know, you spoke about injury, not getting selected, not getting a contract, yeah. whatever it might be. And it's just the cycle you're used to, but you've got the highs to get you out of it again. And then you've got the structure to put you back in place. Definitely. Um, and it's interesting you say that because I, I currently coach um, professional rugby and for a couple of years now, you know, with the evolution of sport, you know, football, all sport now, I mean, the investment in it is just, it motors along, doesn't yeah. it? It never stands still in terms of the level as it's at. Um, but that's mainly from a conditioning point of view, tactics, all of that sort of up skill level point of view, technical point of view. But I still think the value of having someone clinical involved, especially in team sport, um, and, I, and I've, I've said it, you know, you get sports psychologists in and, you know, they're, they're good. 
um, for what they do. But someone clinical that can clear a headspace of an athlete, and I'm, I'm still talking relatively to performance in terms of where they're at on a Saturday or whatever it might be. I still think there's huge value, and I think it's a trick. I, I'm not sure if it happens in football, but I know in rugby it doesn't happen. It, it doesn't, I and, and I, I totally agree with you, because a footballer has deluded itself that it's ahead of the curve because it's had sports psychologists. But these are optimum performance state guys. Yeah, not the there, same, there isn't it? someone looking after the human being behind the athlete, you know, and they're two very different approaches. What what you're being taught as an elite athlete, that, that <laughs> mindset of, you know, no fear, I'll achieve at all costs, I'll run through brick walls, failure is not an option. It's necessary to, to be in the in the in the top 0.1%, but it's destructive when you apply it as a human being in the rest of your life. You know, I, I totally agree that that every athlete, especially in a, in a in a team environment, needs to understand the whole self. That their sporting prowess is only one part of their entire persona, and and should only hold that weight when they when people are valuing themselves. What you the mindset you're taught as a as a professional athlete is uh, is not conducive to living a healthy human life. Well, I mean, you've spoken about it already in the big, you know, in retirement, you know, whether you have had, you know, too many lows or not that many lows, but in retirement, it's always difficult for every athlete. And a big part of that is, is the lack of identity. Yeah. And you've just said, you know, if you think your sporting prowess and your identity as a sportsman is defining, to suddenly not have that is, you know, that's going to, you're going to hit a new low there. Well, you know, whatever you've achieved, whoever you are, you're going to hit a new low. Um, and, you know, we, we talk about it, you know, having that clinical support, whether it be to perform every week, but certainly with that transition and understanding, so everything should become... I say easier, but a little bit more seamless and, you know, people are a bit more aware. Just, just professionally manage, Nick. Just have someone, you know, who's there consistently, who is, like you said, professionally qualified and they can observe the change in yeah. the person throughout the transition or approach to transition and, and guide them because you're not going to be able to take the impact of retirement away. You're not going to. It will always leave a void within a person. But being able to manage that and support the person throughout that, I think can only come in very particular ways. And, you know, you're talking about the, the team sport lifestyle and the highs and lows. This is also something that can mask adverse mental health because if we won matches and I were selected and I played well, the adrenaline endorphin high that I had was enough to tide me over until the next day or the next match. If we lost and I performed poorly, which internally for me, by the way, meant that I was a bad person and I didn't deserve to go out for a meal or smile for the next three days. But if, if we performed badly and lost, then the depths of emotion that I felt with that, I could always say, oh, it's because I lost. You know, and people say, oh, it means so much to him. Whereas actually I can look back now and think that the, the lows that I had around team selection and around uh, losing matches, etc., they were disproportionate. 
But yeah. because it was all happening at the same time as the football, it kind of masked that there might have been something else going on. And also you're talking about, you know, we're talking about drinking behaviours, let's say. You drink with everyone else in team sports invariably or, or a lot of your, your teammates and colleagues and everyone's doing the same things. And even if you're doing it, say, an extra 10%, it kind of gets lost in the crowd, you know, and you you might get a, a mantle for being the party animal or he's the guy who can drink a pint in three seconds. Look, show this person, show that person. And you do it. You know, you, you put that mask on, whether you want to or not, you wear that mantle and you do it. And because everyone else... There's no part of the craving, the attention and adulation that uh, comes with all yeah. the playing, isn't it? And, and because you're part of that large mix, you know, someone who's doing it disproportionately or with differing uh, motivation, they get overlooked. Uh, and... and that that's I don't know how you fix that to be quite honest. I don't know how you address that, but the point I'm trying to make is that I was able to self-medicate and say it was just what everyone else was doing. You know, either everyone else was drinking or I was able to be desperately low, depressively low, and say, Oh, it's because we've lost three games on the bounce. Does that make sense? I could attribute it to something else instead of actually looking at why my emotions were so spectacularly disparate. Because I suppose, you know, a big big, um, thing in it all is you think it's just affecting you. Yes. I am... Now, I am the odd one out here. You know, I am the anomaly to, you know, in a bad sense. Whereas when you've got other people doing the same thing or you're part of other people doing that same thing, it gives you a little bit of solace that, oh, no, 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 you know, this is normal behaviour, yeah. although you're not really thinking too deeply about it. It's normal behaviour within a group. Yeah. And it it definitely know. does affect other people. You know, I've uh, spent uh, time in therapy talking about the impact it had on my ex-wife specifically, you know, my... Uh, my wife now doesn't know of, the, of these behaviours of self-medicating and uh, I thank God for that. But, you know, my, my ex-wife, I can remember her, her saying, you know, she, she lives waiting for the next thing to happen. And, and that, that must be horrendous uh, because we're not talking like I was acting out every week or every other week. It would happen once every three or four months. But can you imagine living in that state of perpetual fear? You know, knowing every time I left the house, he was playing Russian roulette with, with, with the situation. You know, that must have been a, a really uncomfortable uh, existence for her. Yeah, it, it does yeah. affect the people around us. It really does. It does. Um, Advice-wise... Um, what would you, but you know, it's been an absolutely fascinating talk, this, uh, Clark and, uh, you know, extremely honest and open and, uh, thank you very, very much. And, you know, it's been thought provoking for me as well. Um, you know, from a, on a personal level and, uh, you know, also, you know, being, a, you know, being a father and, you know, a husband, but also, you know, with my role in terms of, uh, my coaching as well. And, you know, I think we all need, um, to be much more well to be encouraged to be much more aware and openly talk um regards mental health um advice anyone listening right now that's struggling um with their mental well-being what one or two bits of advice 
would you give to them? Um, two bits it would be. First of all, do the Goldberg test. Uh, we, we've got a website, uh, clarkandcarriesplace.com. And uh, on there, we have all the online diagnostic tests. So whether it's uh, the Goldberg test, which is for depression, uh, the anxiety test, um, PTSD, etc. There's about seven or eight different diagnostic tools on there. Um, if you're feeling the things that I've talked about, which you know relate to yeah. depression, take the Goldberg test. Uh, nobody sees your, your your answers. Nobody sees your score. But after these 22 questions, it gives you a number, an objective number, and advice of who to take that number to. So I think that's brilliant. You know, as human beings, this, this is, it, it's really quite a subjective topic sometimes, isn't it? But if you can get a score and you can take that to your GP and say, I've taken the Goldberg test, it gave me this score and advised me to come and speak to you, then do it. My second piece of advice is, look, you don't have to be like me and tell everyone, but if you're having these thoughts or if these feelings are resonating with you, it's imperative that you tell someone, you know. And uh, just like you were saying earlier, Nick, sometimes your loved one might not be the first port of call because not everyone is in that place to hear it. So, you know, my wife says that if I'd have told her that I was feeling suicidal, she wouldn't have taken it well because she was pregnant, yeah. you know, and then she'd have thought, oh, well, what's wrong with our life? Or, you know, what have I done wrong? Because it is, we all take things personally, first of all, yeah. you know. Well, well, sure, yeah. Stop thinking about yourself. Yeah, exactly. You know, you know, it's all very, it's a very judgmental process unless you, your, your partner or loved one has been trained in this area. So I, I would say tell someone. There are loads of, of listening lines, like Samaritans, mind have got a listening line. Um, talk to your GP who's trained for that, who can actually give you virtual um, sessions now, which are very, very helpful. Talk to someone. Brilliant, brilliant advice. Not over there. Yeah. What, if you, what if you think you know someone who might be suffering? So, mm, Brilliant question about someone suffering but as we you know you, you've got to be honest with yourself you've got to be aware and you've got to be open to to take the goldberg test and, and to call someone up but there's a lot of people that would be a very close you know shot too much prize stoicism you know for, for whatever reason um what advice would you give them um two different scenarios one if you're just generally concerned about them then introduce the topic of doing the Goldberg test, you know, the PTSD test. The PTSD test is a very good one to introduce because um, there, are, there is research that says they expect over 50% of the population to experience PTSD from coronavirus and the corona, the lockdown situation. So that that's non-judgmental, that, that's non-threatening. You know, you'd be like... I saw this piece of research that said, oh, you know, they're, they're expecting people to be suffering PTSD. We're going to take this PTSD test. Why don't you take it with us? Or, you know, why don't you do it? And encouraging people to get this objective score from a diagnostic tool is a very good start. Um, it's so hard to talk to someone when your concern is for them if they don't share that concern because it, it can feel like a judgment, like a personal slide. My MO is, is always to look for a change in behaviour in someone. 
because a change in behaviour is one of the primary indicators of someone yep. having some kind of adverse mental health uh, issue going on. And when that happens, I ask them with no threat or whatsoever, you, you know, what's what's going on at the moment? What's going on today? You don't seem yourself. Uh, and, you know, what? whatever they come back with, my response is, how can I help you in that? What You know, what would you like me to do for you in this? Um Nobody likes things being imposed upon them. Uh, and in when you're looking at mental health, it, it's even more important that you don't impose something because what works for me won't work for you, Nick, and what works for you won't work for the next person. What work, you know, there are 70 million people in the country. There's 70 million different mental health action plans because we all want and need and respond to different things. So I always inquire, what, you know, what's going on? You don't see yourself at the moment. And then offer myself to support them in doing something, as opposed to how can I fix you? Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. No, 100%. I actually, um, I'm not trying to make out that uh, I'm some sort of therapist, but I have actually phoned a few. You're talking about social media. I'm not a big fan of social media whatsoever. I am on it, but fleetingly. Mm-hmm. Um and when I see someone on it a little bit too regular for what I know that person, yeah. I, you know, I do give them a call and yeah, just check on them. Don't tell them the reason it might be happening. And, uh, you know, you know, there's many different ways to start, but, uh, but I always think that's a trigger. And the amount of times, the majority of the times people said, actually things aren't great. No, that's brilliant. Yeah. That, that's a brilliant. But when you're trying to portray they are by sending happy photographs of what you're doing yeah. or, updating people all the time whereas actually if things are going well you don't need to go exactly on you don't need that external <laughs> validation do you no exactly mm-hmm. 100%. Uh, clark this has been absolutely fascinating quite astonishing Nick, just before we wrap up there's one thing i want to say about if you're worried about someone else because if you're worried that someone else is going to harm themselves or they're in danger you ring 999 and you ask for a welfare check And you ask for a welfare check, you give the person's name, and then the police will go around not to criminalise whoever you've mentioned, but to check that they are okay and that they're not in harm's way. That is brilliant, brilliant advice. Excellent advice. Thanks very much for that. And thank you very much for the last hour, mates. Quite astonishing, um, absolutely inspirational. It's a subject that's extremely relevant, top of the list. You know, we know the numbers of, you know, suicide deaths um, in men under the age of 45 tops the list, doesn't it, in, in the UK. Um, it's Mental Health Awareness Month as well uh, we're in, but actually you should be aware every single minute and day uh, of yourselves and, and any friends and family's lives as well. Um, and actually, you know, despite the subject matter, I think uplifting because, you know, you're a real trailblazer for where we need to go in this and, and the work you're doing from your own experiences clearly um, is you know, extremely commendable. Stay well yourself, mate. Thank you. Stay healthy. Our paths might cross again. Uh, I really hope they do. Me too. And thanks very much for your time. Well, thank you, Nick. God bless. Rocket with Nick Easter. Thank you for listening to Racket. Stay tuned for more interviews with some of the UK's biggest sports stars regards mental health.